I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. We want to look at a scripture in, um, uh, a couple of scriptures in John 14, and then we'll go immediately to John chapter 16. This is healing school, and we always minister along the lines of healing. Um, tonight, I want to approach things maybe from a little different angle than we normally do. Uh, I, uh, uh, I trust that, um, well, how do I say this? Um, Many times it seems that people assume that all healing services are the same or should be the same. But it's difficult, um, it's difficult to have a healing crusade in the church. The reason for that is because healing crusades by and large are for people outside the body of Christ. I know that, um, uh, the things that I had uh, experience with Brother Hagen, um, a lot of the, the signs and wonders and, and um, uh, revelations and moves of the Holy Ghost that he had were not for church people. And I remember hearing Brother Hagin say that uh, that when he pastored for 12 years, uh, during those 12 years, they had a lot of people healed. But most of those people were healed through the teaching of the word. In those 12 years, they were on, and those were three or three or, well, it was four different Three different churches in four different things. He went back to one church the second time. So it was three different churches over 12 years. And he said in those 12 years, he only had three moves of the Holy Ghost that ever uh, caused one of his church members to be uh, to be healed. Everybody else got healed through the teaching of the word. So Jesus said in, in John chapter 14. In verse 16, notice he said, and I will pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. Now, the word comforter is the word helper, uh, translated the word helper. In the Greek, it's the word paraclete. That means eight different things. And Jesus is saying when uh, the fact that he says, I'll give you another comforter, is saying literally one of the same kind as me. He's talking about going to the Father. He's talking about them doing the works of G- the works that he did in the previous verses because he's going to the Father and so forth. But now he's saying, but don't worry, I'm going to leave you a helper. I'll pray the Father and he will give you another comforter or helper that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So the comforter comes from within. The comforter works from the inside of those who become children of God. Notice in verse 18, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. Another translation says, I won't leave you orphans. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now skip with me over to chapter 16, just a page over. In verse 13, Jesus is talking about the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Here he defines him or identifies him as the spirit of truth. In verse 13, Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, there are different ways that this, uh, well, let me finish uh, the, the passage and then I'll make some comments. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore, I said that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Now, here in, in uh, verse 13, it can be translated a, a number of different ways. Here where it says, uh, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come. That word truth is used twice in this verse of Scripture, and sometimes it's translated reality. And that's literally what it means. Because, And you could well understand how that translation or that uh, um, interpretation would fit, the exchange of that word would fit, because anything that is truth is reality. 
it's uh, it's interesting to me how the world seems to have the idea that one person's truth is different from another person's truth. Folks, the truth is the truth. One person may have another point of view on the truth, but the truth never changes. So when Jesus is talking about the truth, he's literally talking about God's truth. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, or the spirit of reality is come, he shall guide. This word guide can also be translated teach. He's talking about giving direction. He's talking about bringing knowledge, bringing understanding to the individual. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, or the spirit of reality is come, he shall teach or guide you into all truth or reality. In other words, Jesus is saying, just in the same way that I've been your comforter for three years, I'm leaving you another comforter, and he will guide you into everything. Everything that he guides you into is is the absolute truth. You can trust him. It's sure. It's a strong foundation. Now, what have they looked to Jesus for for those three years? Everything. They've left their businesses. They've left their homes. They're looking to him for their support. So he's their provider. He's certainly their teacher. Everything they've known and learned about God has come from Jesus. They're his example. He's their example, I should say. Jesus is the disciples' example on how the kingdom of God operates and the miraculous power that makes up the kingdom of God. Everything that they've had uh, experience in for the last three years up until this point in time has been because Jesus has been their helper. Not only has he shown them and been an example to them, but he's delegated that same authority to them, and they've handled the supernatural and the miraculous too. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you another helper. I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you helpless. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll make sure you still have the same kind of help that you've had with me for three years. And his name is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. And he will guide you into all truth. Now, folks, here's one of the greatest revelations you can have about the things of God. And that is the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you for one purpose. And that, well, several purposes are identified. But the main purpose, as far as I'm concerned, that the Holy Spirit indwells us is to guide you into whatever area of victory you need. Whatever problems you have in life, the Holy Spirit is your guide to victory in that area. This is healing school, so we're talking about healing versus sickness. If you're facing sickness in your body, an attack of sickness against your, uh, against your flesh, the Holy Spirit is given to you by Jesus' prayer himself. I, I believe Jesus got his prayers answered, don't you think? I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter, even the Spirit of truth. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you, he will lead you, he will teach you into the reality of the things of God, the reality of who you are in Christ and what belongs to you. The Holy Spirit will guide you into healing. Now, I don't know, uh, this may seem elementary, and, and I'm, I don't claim to be deep, but some years ago, it just occurred to me that I wasn't looking to the Holy Ghost to lead me into what I needed. So there was a certain area that I was facing a challenge in, and so I just very simply said out loud, Holy Spirit, Please forgive me for not trusting in you, for not looking to you to guide me into victory in this area. But from this point forward, I'm expecting you to lead me into victory. And it worked so easily that it was almost surprising. I mean, it was almost like you snapped your fingers. I instantly had direction on what to do. And before I had been confused and not knowing what I was going to do. But as soon as I put the Holy Spirit on the spot, as soon as I trusted God's word, took God at his word, that the Holy Spirit was there to guide me into victory. 
and relied on his guidance, I knew immediately what to do. And it worked so simply, it was almost like I had to pinch myself and, and, and ask, did this really happen? You ever ask God for direction and then got it and thought it came too quickly and you wondered, is that really God? Well, it was almost like that for me. It was like I asked him the question, I instantly had the answer, and it was like, wow, that was too easy. Maybe that's not God after all. Well, the devil sure isn't going to give you the answer. And I didn't have the answer on my own before, so who else could it be? The Holy Spirit will guide you into victory. He'll guide you into healing. He'll guide you into healing. Trust him to guide you into healing. Now, as I started to say before we read the scripture, um, it's hard to run a healing crusade in church. And here's why. Healing, when we think about Jesus' healing ministry, most everybody thinks about the signs and the miracles and, and so forth, the miraculous works that he did. Jesus never ministered to church people. Everything Jesus did, he did for the benefit of those that were outside of the family of God because there was no family of God. There were servants of God. Israel were God's servants under the old covenant. But there was no family of God. We don't have Jesus, an example of Jesus ministering to what we would know of or what we could use as an example of Christians. Everything that we see in Jesus' ministry was the equivalent of ministering to the unsaved. Now, as such, a lot of times people think that, well, Jesus had all, all kinds of power. There was no limit to his power, no limit to what he could do. And, and, and in one sense, that's true. And again, when we identify the healings and the miracles and the mighty works that he did, that's what everybody focuses on when we talk about the power of Jesus and, and the works of Jesus. And the Bible even says in John 3, verse 34, that Jesus had the spirit without measure. Well, I don't have the spirit without measure. Do you? If Jesus had the spirit without measure and he was the whole of the body of Christ that was here on the earth, that implies that the body of Christ as a whole has the same spirit without measure in total, but I'm just a part of that body. That means I have the spirit by measure. I've got a measure. You've got a measure. Everybody else in here has got a measure. And that total makes up the measure of what Jesus had on him. But even thinking of it like that, we get the idea that Jesus was just some pulsing power source. But remember what happened over in John chapter 5 at the man with the man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus walks into the place that everybody is looking for the troubling of the water. The angel comes down and stirs the water up every now and then. And the first person in after the water is troubled gets healed. Jesus walks up and there's a crippled man there. It says there were five porches full of folks. Now, I don't know how many that is, but it sounds like a pretty good-sized crowd. More than a few, certainly. If it was just a few, you could crowd under one porch. But there were five porches full of people waiting for the troubling of the water. So I would assume that it's a pretty good-sized crowd, and, and I, I, I wouldn't try to attach a number to it, but it's more than just a, a, a small group. You would certainly... Understand that. And the Bible says of this man, Jesus went up to this crippled man, and he said, Wilt thou be made whole? It's interesting to me that Jesus is looking for the man's will, first and foremost. Now, your will demonstrates where a person is in faith. I think he's looking for faith. But one reason I think that is because Jesus looked for faith everywhere he went. And where he couldn't find it, he taught the word so that it would inspire faith or build faith in those who didn't have it beforehand. But Jesus asked this guy, wilt thou be made whole? And he says, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. I'm too slow to get in. Somebody beats me into the water. And only the first one in gets healed, so I'm always left out. 
It implies that he's been there for a long time. It implies that he's been slow and therefore he's been left out. Now, folks, let me take a little side journey here. Isn't that unfair? I mean, why doesn't the angel stand there and trouble the water until somebody gets healed and then trouble the water for somebody else and then trouble the water for somebody else until everybody is healed? Wouldn't that be the fair way to do things? Folks, there's nothing about this world and there isn't even anything that the Bible tells us about heaven or the things of heaven that are fair. You can't find any scripture that says God's fair. Not in what we think fairness is. We think fairness is everybody gets the same thing. Nowhere does the Bible say God's fair. You may have gifts that provide for you better than I have gifts that provide for me. The gifts that God has given you may provide you a greater income than the gifts that God has given me is able to provide for me. Well, is that fair? What if I'm getting more people saved than you? Is that fair? See, the world thinks of fairness in a whole lot different way than God does. Nowhere does the Bible say God is fair. It says God is just, which means God gives everybody the same opportunities. God gives everybody the same spiritual riches in heavenly places that you can do with according to your will to provide for yourself in whatever way you have the leading of the Lord to do. So there's a lot of things about heaven that aren't going to be fair. For example, you remember Jesus telling the story about the the man that had uh, ten talents? He had ten talents, or, well, the the story is written two different ways. One way it says a guy had five talents, another guy had three, and another guy had one. And so Jesus uh, uses the example of the landlord or the the talent owner, the master of the house, saying, okay, I'm going away in a far country. Use these things and, and occupy till I come. Well, the guy with five turned it into ten. The guy with three turned it into six. And the guy with one buried it and gave him back one. Well, Jesus, using this as as an example of the rewards in heaven, commends the guy that turned his five into ten, commends the guy that turned his three into six, and takes the one from the guy that just buried it and gave it to the guy that had ten. So now you got two guys that did the same work in occupying till he comes. One has eleven and the other has six. How's that fair? Folks, the Bible doesn't say rewards in heaven are going to be fair, meaning equal. God's not into what people call social justice here on the earth. God rewards works. You determine what works you do. So how is it fair that only this one guy, whoever it is, after the water is troubled by the angel, is the only one that gets healed? There's a lot more people there. Doesn't God care about those other people? Certainly he does. He didn't care about the one that gets into the water first any more than he cares about the ones that are left out. Jesus, however, back to the story, Jesus asked the guy, wilt thou be made whole? And he says, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. And Jesus, who had the spirit without measure, says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Literally, Jesus, in the presence of the place, the very place where the angel comes down at at certain times, nobody knows when it's going to happen, comes down and troubles the water, Jesus stirs the waters of people. And he says to the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now the man takes up his bed and walk. Now you remember the story. He gets in trouble with the Pharisees. 
They see him walking and carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, and they get all upset about that. And the man said, or the Pharisee said to him, what are you doing breaking the law? And he said, well, the guy that healed me told me to carry it. So I listened to him. And the Pharisees asked him. They said, well, who was it that told you to do this? And the man said, the King James says, the man with not, means meaning he knew not who it was that told him. So that means he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know about Jesus. He had never heard Jesus preach. He knew nothing about Jesus whatsoever. That would be a type of the unsaved, wouldn't it? Now, here's the rest of the story. The Bible says Jesus conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Why didn't he heal anybody else? He's got the spirit without measure. Doesn't the spirit without measure mean that Jesus could just heal and manifest the spirit of God any way and any time he wanted to? Isn't that what that must mean? No, it doesn't. Jesus operated as a man here on the earth. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory, and that's the reason why Jesus had to be anointed with the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, because if he still had the heavenly power and glory that he had with the Father before he became a human being, then he wouldn't have needed to be anointed. Who can anoint God? What need would God have to be anointed? But Jesus is not ministering on the earth as God. He's ministering on the earth as a man without anything more any more power than you or I would have as a human being. So he had to be anointed of the Holy Ghost. That's why Acts 10.38 is so important. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Well, if Jesus of Nazareth is operating as the Christ, who needs to anoint him? If he's operating as the Son of God, who needs to anoint him? But he isn't. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, notice that's his human name, with the Holy Ghost in power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. How was God with him? Through the anointing. Through the anointing power of the Holy Ghost. In other words, the same helper that Jesus had to do miracles here on the earth is the helper that he's leaving you and me. That's why he could say the Spirit of God will guide you into all truth. So since Jesus, who had the Spirit without measure, only ministered to this one guy, what does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus didn't have the gifts of the Spirit in his possession to use at his discretion. It means he operated the same way that we operate. He didn't have the gifts of the Spirit. He had the manifestation of the Spirit. And that's the only one, the only person in John 5, the man of the pool of Bethesda, was the only person that the Holy Spirit manifested himself to heal in that case. That's not generally people's idea of Jesus having unlimited power, is it? It's not Jesus, not most people's idea. But that's the way it works. Now, Brother Hagin said, and, and we have a, a limited um, degree of experience with this because uh, of the, the, the difference in our church and the way that, G, the way that God used Brother Hagin and the people that came to him. In uh, in Brother Hagin's day, when he pastored, he said that his Sunday night services were, by, by and large, um, the uh, the ones where everybody came to. He had a lot of farmers and stuff like that, so everybody would come to the Sunday night services instead of Sunday morning, just the opposite of the way things are now. Now, if you get 100 people out on Sunday night, you know you've got people that love God, and thank you for loving God. But on Sunday nights, 
Those were his evangelistic services, his Sunday morning services. And if he had midweek services, they were primarily teaching services. And then Sunday morning was just feeding the sheep. But then Sunday nights would be everybody in town would be looking for somewhere to go because there wasn't anything else to do. There were no picture shows to go to. There were no other distractions. So people would go to church for something, some reason or some way to get out of the house. And he said during those Sunday night services, they would have almost a continual flow of the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. He'd have people healed by the manifestation of the Spirit of God, but none of them, with the exception of three times over those 12-year periods in different churches, only three times were those manifestations of the Spirit for people inside the church, his own church people. Now, why is that? Because God expects more of believers. God expects believers to believe. Brother Hagin also said this. He said because there were fewer distractions, he said faith was at a higher level then than it is today. Now, he said this. He went home to be with the Lord in 2003. And he said this probably, I don't know, maybe not quite two years before then. So it had been late 2001, maybe early 2002 that he said that. And that really struck me as odd. He said, he said, because there were fewer distractions, and that's the thing that he credited it to. He said, because there were fewer distractions, faith was at a higher level. People didn't have as much to take their attention away from the things of God. Now, there's always been the cares of this world. There's always been, you know, the, the issues of life and so forth. But he said, because people are so distracted now and they have so many options and so many opportunities to go out to eat, to go to the movie theater, to do this, that, or the other, just uh, transportation is so much different now than it was in the 1930s and 40s when he was pastoring. He said, because there are so many more distractions, he said, faith is at a much lower level nowadays than it was back then. Interesting, huh? I wonder if that's why the Bible instructs us Focus our attention on the things of heaven. I wonder if the devil knows that the more he can increase society, the more he can ramp up the activity of society, the more people will be distracted from the things of God. If that's the case, folks, he's done a bang up job. Wouldn't you agree? Now turn with me over to James chapter five. Here's Jesus, an example over in John 5 that we just talked about where Jesus is ministering to somebody that's unsaved, someone that doesn't know him and doesn't know God, doesn't know anything about Jesus. The fact that he said that he didn't know who it was that told him to take up his bed and walk tells me that he's never been in a meeting of Jesus, even when Jesus ministered in Jerusalem where this took place. He he hasn't heard anything about Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, are you that prophet guy that everybody's talking about? There's no indication, there's no mention, there's nothing that would uh, imply in the, the simplest terms or even the slightest hint that he knew anything about Jesus whatsoever. James chapter 5 tells us about how healing works in the church. Let's notice starting in verse 13, it says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, folks, I want you to notice, I started with verse 13 because I want you to notice he mentions three things. He says, if you're afflicted, pray. If you're merry, sing psalms. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Now, you would never imagine or even think of somebody or, or even put yourself in this position. Nobody would do this. 
I've yet in, in the years that we pastored the church or, or have yet heard from any of my pastor friends that anybody has ever come to them and says, I feel so good. Would you please sing for me? Everybody does their own singing when things are going good, don't they? Notice, he says, is any afflicted, let him pray. Why is it that the first thing people do when they run into trouble, and the word affliction means test trial or afflictions? Trouble, in other words. How come it is that when people get in a hard place, the first thing they do is turn in a prayer request? I learned something from Brother Hagin again, and forgive me for using him as an example, but he was my spiritual father, and he's who I learned from. I heard Brother Hagin say, uh, at, at this point in time, he had been... Uh, walking with the Lord for 60-some, 64 years, he said this. He said, I've never known anybody that could possibly be as interested in me as I am. He said, so if I run into a financial problem, I'm, I'm certain that nobody else is going to be as interested in my finances as I am. He said, if I have a family problem, nobody's going to be as interested in my family and their well-being as I am. He said, for that reason, I have not in 64 years ever turned into prayer request anybody. I listened to that, and I thought, well, that certainly makes sense. Now, it's fine to get people to agree with you, and he he had certainly done that over the years. But so many times people are wanting other people to take on the burden of praying for them about their situation, and yet that's not what the Bible says to do. Now, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. He said, if you're in a hard place, you pray. Now, here's another thing that I think contributes a lot to the, the difference in the level of faith nowadays than in, in the days when Brother Hagin pastored. Brother Hagin said that in, uh, in the, the early days when he was, uh, while he was pastoring, he said it was the commonplace practice of many churches, if not most churches, that at the end of the service they'd just come up around the altar and pray. And people would sometimes stay there for 30 minutes and sometimes stay there for longer. And he said, for that reason, as a pastor, I never had to counsel anybody. Because people who come to the altar and pray and get their answers on their knees. But so many times nowadays, everybody's in too big of a hurry. And so they don't even think about really praying through in their situation and getting the direction from God and staying in prayer until they get direction. I heard Dr. Cho say something like this. Uh, Dr. Cho, who pastors in Seoul, Korea. Uh, he, at one time, he had the largest church in the world. Maybe he still does. I don't know. I, I would imagine that he still does. I just don't know for sure. But he said this. He said, when people want to come for counseling, he said, the first thing that I do is I tell them, let's get down on our knees and pray for two hours. Well, folks, I would imagine that thins out the counseling calls. Don't know for sure, but I'm just imagining that, especially in America, you're not going to have too many takers on that if the, if the word gets out. That'll cut down on your calls. And folks, I, I don't necessarily mean this literally. I mean, literally, it would be a good thing to do. But the principle that the Bible is telling us is God will talk to you about your issues. He'll talk to you about your hard places. He'll talk to you about your own experiences. Now, how is he going to do that? Remember, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and he'll guide you into all truth. I think the fact that so many times we are so quick to get somebody else or try to get somebody else to pray for us is an indication that we're not relying on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We're not looking for the Holy Spirit to guide us into victory. We're not looking for the help of the helper. Wouldn't you agree? So he says, is any of you afflicted? Let him pray. 
Is any of you merry? Let him sing songs. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, this word, uh, this word sick was identified by P.C. Nelson. P.C. Nelson was an elder man, older gentleman, used to be a Presbyterian minister. And uh, he was hit by a car back in the early 1900s. And as a result, it, uh, it did a lot of damage to his leg. And uh, he got, uh, it got infected and it uh, turned into gangrene. And so he's about to lose his leg. And so as a Presbyterian minister, he just got into the Word to find out if there was any help for him from, the, from God. Well, long story short, as he found that it was healing in the Word. So he received his healing, became a Pentecostal full gospel minister, got filled with the Holy Ghost as a result. And uh, and went into a, a, a ministry of healing himself. Now, P.C. Nelson died in 1974. And when he died, the newspaper report on him said that he was the foremost Greek authority in the country at his death. And he was the second most renowned authority on the Hebrew language in his life. Brother Hagin said that he personally heard Brother uh, Nelson, Dr. Nelson, tell a group of ministers, a small group of ministers in a certain meeting that they were having or whatever, somebody asked him, how many languages can you read and write? First they said, how many languages do you know? And he said, well, I don't know any yet. He said, okay, well, how many can you read and write? And he said, 32. You could understand this is quite an intelligent and learned man. Dr. Nelson said about this verse in James chapter 5, verse, uh, uh, what is it, verse 15? Verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. He said the word sick implies someone that's beyond doing anything for themselves. Literally, it means, is any of you beyond doing anything for yourself in the area of sickness? If so, let him call for the elders of the church. But again, the implication is you should be going to God for your issues, even when it's an attack of sickness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will guide you into healing. But look at what the church world does nowadays. Nowadays, everybody in the church, everybody that knows anything about a church preaching healing will run to the church and try to get healed. We have people from other churches that are wanting to come. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to commit themselves to the Lord. They just want healing. Well, is that what the Bible says to do? Now, we do pray. We'll help anybody we can. We're, I mean, I'm not God. I'm not the one to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do. Somebody comes to me and asks me to, to lay hands on them for healing. I'll ask them what they believe. And if they're in faith or we can ascertain any kind of point of agreement, I'll lay hands on them, minister to them. We're here to help. But is that really what the Bible says to do? See, God, you're heavenly father. And I think so often what happens is people are looking for somebody with an anointing. We're looking for somebody that has that can get us an answer. And once we get an answer, then we'll rely on that person instead of growing to know that God is our Father personally. Is any of you is any sick among you? Is any of you beyond doing anything for yourself? Now, if the Holy Spirit really is the greater one. If the Holy Spirit is the same helper for you that he was for Jesus, what are the odds that the Holy Spirit would fail to lead you into the victory of healing? Seemed to me to be pretty slim. Now, let me tell you something that happened in uh, uh, back in uh, many years past. 
in the, the uh, late 50s, there was a healing revival that began, and Oral Roberts was the, the foremost healing revivalist in, in the land. There were two men primarily that were, that were used more of God uh, to, to spark the, the, the revival than anybody else. One was William Branham. He operated in the office of a prophet, and the other was Oral Roberts. Uh, Oral Roberts kind of went a little different direction than, uh, than Dr. Branham, Brother Branham, because uh, he wasn't really part of any uh, full gospel, recognized full gospel group. And so Oral Roberts would go into a town and he would have an evangelistic campaign and, uh, and would heal primarily as an evangelist. But he would, uh, he'd have great revivals. He'd have great healing meetings. There'd be thousands of people. He had tents that would uh, seat upwards of 10, 15, and even up to 20,000 people over the years as, uh, as the crowds grew. And, um, uh, and it was, a, it was an amazing thing. I mean, whole cities would turn out for these campaigns, these healing crusades. Well, there was a certain minister in a, in a town where Brother Roberts went to. He um, uh, was one of the group of ministers cooperating pastors in that area. And so he said, we got together and we decided that we wanted, we had heard about other things that had happened in other cities and, and uh, we were looking to, to, um, uh, to take in the people that received from God as much as we could and be a help to them if they needed a church, find them a good local church. We were all, you know, working together on this thing. And he said, we came up with an idea. And that idea was a mailer that we were planning to send out, you know, a matter of maybe three weeks, maybe four weeks after the, the uh, crusade was over. And that way we could kind of follow up on people and find out, you know, what they received, what happened to them, and are they still walking with the Lord. So they developed this little postcard. And this postcard, they made it as simple as they could. Uh, were you ministered to by uh, Brother Roberts during the campaign, during the crusade? They only had the mailing addresses for the people that came uh, to the the, uh, uh, the prayer rooms and, and filled out the cards and things like that. So were you ministered to by, by uh, Brother Roberts? Yes or no? Check yes. If yes, did you receive your healing? Yes or no? If you received your healing, do you, have you, have you retained your healing or something to that effect? Yes or no? What do you consider to be your home church? Um, not, uh, not in the name of a church, but a denomination or whatever. And what they found is they found that only 20% of the people that identify themselves as being Pentecostal received their healing during the meeting. And of those 20%, 80% had lost it within a month. But when they got to the denominational people, folks that didn't know better, folks that hadn't been taught or, sh- or didn't have any access to being taught about the healing power of God, when they got into the denominational people, the percentage went up to 80. 80% of the Baptists and the Methodists and so forth received their healing, and most of them retained their healing a month later when they filled out the card. Of the unsaved... The, the percentage was even higher. They said, we dare say that everybody got it, but it sure looked like that from the responses. They got 6,000 cards back, and from those cards, they were able to identify that the Pentecostals were the least likely to have received their healing during the meeting. Now, why? Does God not care about Pentecostal people? No, he expects more from them. They were trying to receive healing in a manner that wasn't prescribed for the church. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, don't leave John, uh, James yet. I didn't finish this. 
James chapter 5, verse 14. Is any sick among you? Any beyond doing anything for themselves? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over them, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The word saved is the same word as heal. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick. So he provides something for those who are beyond getting help for themselves, right? Now, notice in verse 16, he goes on. He's still talking about the same thing. He said, confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that you may be healed. So he's still talking about healing, isn't he? Now, what does he mean? Does he mean confess your faults like uh, somebody has a fault of always being late? There's no need to confess that. We all know you're late. We see you come in late. What's he talking about? He's talking about confessing those things that you do wrong to one another. In other words, he's saying clear things up so you stay in love. But notice that he says that as we clear things up, don't harbor any unforgiveness, don't let any any wedge come in between our relationships with each other. Notice he said we are supposed to pray one for another that we may be healed. He didn't say a thing in the world about going back to the elders of the church. In other words, he's saying walking in love will open the prayer channels so that you can pray for each other to be healed. Now, if it's not God's will to heal everybody, why would he tell them to pray for something that they wouldn't have? Here's the Holy Spirit telling the church how to stay well. Walk in love. One with another. He's not talking about the elders praying now. He's talking about the layman praying for each other. He's talking about the people in the church praying for each other. Why? Because God hears a layman's prayers just like he hears a minister's prayers. And not only that, but he identifies that it's the will of God for everybody to be healed. And everybody should have a healing ministry in the sense that we walk in love with one another and protect each other. Don't see that too much in church, do you? Usually we're trying to inspire people to believe right now, which is the way a healing crusade or a healing campaign takes place. That's a tough way to live in a church. Now, the reason I'm talking about these things is because, by and large, we don't have people in from the outside in great measure or great numbers. So you need to know here's how it works. I wonder how many times somebody comes to me or somebody else to have hands laid on them to receive their healing and fails to, to, to receive because they haven't confessed their faults or their sins, their wrongdoings to the person that they wronged. They didn't clear things up. They didn't walk in forgiveness. I wonder how many times that worked. You remember in John chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda, after he says to the Pharisees, I don't know who it was that told me to take up my bed and walk, but whoever it was, I, told, I did what he told me to do. It says later on, Jesus found him and said something to him. What did he say? He said, don't worry about sin because the mercy of God will always take you through. No. He said, go and sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. See, so often in the church nowadays, the modern day church, we're trying to talk about what belongs to you. We're trying to inspire people to, to put their trust in God that we fail to talk about that there is a consequence for sin. We want to talk about so much of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the goodness of God that we leave out sometimes the reality that if you don't walk in forgiveness, it'll hinder your prayer life. If you don't walk in forgiveness, it opens the door for the devil to come after you. Now, with that in mind, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 11. Is this making any sense to anybody? Not exactly a hoop and holler type service, huh? But folks, there's great protection in it. 
There's great blessings if we're willing to walk in it. The Old Testament said, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, I'll take sickness from the midst of you and the number of your days you'll fulfill. Well, has God changed his mind about that? Was that just an Old Testament promise? But now that we have the better covenant, that part fell away? No, it's still God's plan, still God's purpose. The only thing that's changed is the commandment. Under the old commandment or the old covenant, they had the law of Moses. What we sometimes summarize is the Ten Commandments. There were a lot more than ten, 632 to be exact. But they were responsible for keeping all of the old covenant, all of the Old Testament law. Jesus said, however, in John chapter 13, he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. The Bible says he that loves has fulfilled the law. So the principle is still the same. If you walk in God's statute, God's commandment of love, he'll take sickness away from the midst of you and the number of your days he'll fulfill. Isn't that what James 5.16 is talking about? If there's anything that you have between you and somebody else, clear it up, talk it out, and then pray for each other that you may be healed. The implication is the reason that you haven't been healed, the reason that you're sick is because there's unforgiveness or the broken law of love in practice. Now, let me show you the only place in the New Testament where it talks about the church and why the church might be sick. There are other things that we can surmise, but here's the one time, the only time, where Paul identifies by the Holy Ghost, here's why some people are weak, here's why some people are sick, here's why some people die prematurely. I don't know about you, but I want to live out all my days. Don't you? Thank God the Bible tells us how. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. Verse 27, we'll start reading in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. It says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Now, notice it's unworthily. That's an adverb. The devil tries to make you think you're unworthy, but the fact is the blood of Jesus is is the only thing that can make you worthy, and the blood of Jesus has made you worthy if you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for yourself. Meaning, if you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's impossible for you to be unworthy. But unworthily is talking about the manner in which you receive the Lord's Supper. In other words, your attitude toward it. He's saying very specifically, whosoever receives the Lord's Supper with the wrong attitude shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, we know what the circumstance is. Paul identified that the Lord's Supper is being used by many of these people as a a drunken feast. A lot of people are eating and drinking and just having a high-heeled time and not taking care to make sure that everybody has anything. And there's no reverence attached to the thing. They're just treating it as a church supper. And that's an unworthy manner to receive the Lord's Supper. They're failing to discern or recognize the importance and the reverence of the elements that represent Jesus' body and his blood. And notice he says, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily with the wrong attitude toward it, in other words, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Man, that sounds serious. Now, it doesn't say he'll go to hell. But it says he's guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Notice our attitude toward things has a big difference to do with the results that we get. Verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For... He that eateth and drinketh unworthily with the wrong attitude, eateth and drinketh, or maybe we should say irreverently, with an irreverent attitude. Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, 
not discerning the Lord's body. Now, what does that damnation include? Is he talking about going to hell? No. He said, verse 30, for this cause. Here's the condemnation that comes on us if we have an irreverent attitude to the Lord's Supper, and that which represents Jesus, the body and the blood of Jesus. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Sickly means subject to various sicknesses. Many are weak and sickly, and many sleep. Another translation says many died prematurely. Wow, that sounds pretty serious. Now, just as soon as you say something like this, the devil jumps on your shoulder and says, you remember that last time we took communion, your mind was off in a thousand different places. Folks, that's not what we're talking about. That's not the kind of thing that this is referring to at all. We receive the Lord's Supper with a very reverent and respectful attitude. We talk about it representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. The whole church was participating in wrong, wrongful activities relative to the Lord's Supper. There's nobody standing up and saying, stop all this. This is not a time for you to get drunk. Paul's having to do it long distance through a letter. Then he knows he's going to get criticized for writing. There's no leadership. There's nobody stepping up and saying, look, we need to respect this. We need to have a reverential attitude toward this. This represents the body and the blood of the Lord. There's power in this. This is the same crowd that the young man had taken his father's wife and living with him openly in sin that Paul had to say, when you're come together, when you next come together, I'm, my spirit is going to be joined with you. I've already talked to the Lord about this. We're turning him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. There's nobody in in this church that's standing up and giving any kind of leadership or direction in the things of God whatsoever. But everybody's just doing their own thing. It's a church that seems to be run by mob. I started to say committee, but in this case, it's pretty much a mob. They've got all kinds of things going on. They're not respecting each other. They're not walking in love toward one another. Just about anything and everything you can imagine is taking place there. Yet the Holy Ghost, the helper, is still there moving in a supernatural way. Seems like if the Holy Ghost is going to pull away from anybody, it would have been this bunch. Doesn't it? But the helper is given to help you. He's not given to judge you. He's given to help you. So here's the condemnation. Here's the what being guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus results in. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, please notice verse 31. Paul's saying there's a way out. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, how is the judgment going to come? By some being weak and sickly and some dying prematurely. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned of the, with the world. In other words, some people die prematurely because of their irreverential attitude or lack of understanding that Jesus died for your sicknesses as well as your sins. And that's certainly unfortunate that they didn't live out their days here on the earth. But it sure does beat going to hell. And remember, that's the reason that Paul said that he turned the guy over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. See, we hear things like that and we think, whoa, man, that sounds harsh. (laughs) Well, it's not as harsh as spending eternity in hell. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 20, 
Uh, let me let me read this to you. Let me see if I can pull it up on my thing real quick and read it. You don't have to turn back there if you don't want to. You'll recognize the story. Second Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it said, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Now, when God tells you you're going to die, that sounds like it's pretty final, doesn't it? Then he, Hezekiah, turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech you, O Lord, remember how now, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass before Isaiah was even gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord. And I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, some people take this story and they say, well, see, you can't trust the Bible because it's full of discrepancies, full of inconsistencies. Here Isaiah says you're going to die and then turns right around and says, no, now God says I'm going to give you 15 more years. Well, that is exactly what happened. But the reason it happened is because Hezekiah judged himself. He changed the circumstances. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Now, folks, that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit guiding you into all truth, too. For some, the direction of the Holy Spirit leading you into victory is to judge yourself for not walking in love. Judge yourself, perhaps, for unforgiveness. See, folks, these are all parts of of healing. They're not the part of, of healing crusades or healing campaigns where we're trying to inspire everybody to come believe and have hands laid on you and receive your healing today. But they're part of healing for the life in the life of the believer. Can you see that? I, I'll tell you this one last story and we'll go. I'm, I'm out of time. Brother Hagen, uh, in, in, in 1950, November of 1950, the Lord appeared to Brother Hagen and gave him a special anointing to heal the sick. Well, from that point forward, Brother Hagen started, to, the, his ministry changed. And there were different things that he would do and, and uh, meetings that we, he would have and, and the healing anointing began to work. And it took him a while, it took him several years to really learn how to work with the anointing that God gave him. It'd be nice to, to think that once God gives you something, all of a sudden everything works like magic and you know how all of it works and stuff. But he had to learn to cooperate with it. I had to learn how to develop in it. And so uh, in the early 50s, maybe 52, 53, somewhere around there, uh, he was praying about some things and the Lord was showing him the power that's in the name of Jesus. And so he saw something about his, uh, his brothers. He had two brothers, an older brother, Dub, and a younger brother, Pat. And he saw some things about both of them. And so he claimed their salvation. Now, Dub was the one that you hear the story about, but at the same time, he claimed Pat's salvation. Well, uh, over the years, there were different situations where Brother Hagin prayed them both out of trouble, critical, life-threatening issues. With, uh, with Pat, there was a, an issue of uh, uh, sickness 
that was very, very critical. It was a heart situation. And Brother Hagin said uh, he, he claimed to have prayed him out of death. He asked uh, the Lord to, to heal his brother and uh, just pled his case. He's too young to die and so forth. Well, when Pat turned 62 years old, he found uh, the doctors found colon cancer. Pat became very successful, had a ranch in, in uh, uh, somewhere in Texas and, and that type of thing and and uh, had become very successful in his business. And, and as a matter of fact, he had uh, several homes and, and that type of thing and was always stingy. I mean, he grew up in the Depression and, and wouldn't turn loose of a dollar for anything. And, uh, and so um, Brother Hagin went down to see him, spent uh, a Thanksgiving or Christmas, some kind of holiday at, uh, at the ranch, and, uh, and Brother Hagin said that, that he had spent a lot of time praying and even fasting for his brother. And, uh, and the Lord said, no, no, healing is, is not going to come for your brother. He said, I answered your prayer in 1952. He said, I saved him. And then I've also answered your prayer over the years when he faced certain critical situations. But he said, I've been waiting on Pat to judge himself for almost 45 years now. 40, 45, 40 something years. And he said, he's never done it. Only now has he made things right. He said, so I've turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So his spirit shall be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, Brother Hagin, once he heard from the Lord on that, what else is there to pray about? So he made plans to go down and see him, saw him over the, the holiday season. And, uh, and he said, he talked to his brother and he said he was a different man. Just totally different man. He said he apologized to Brother Hagin for, for not having supported him over the years. He said it had been the simplest thing. He said, God's prospered me. He said, I've made money hand over fist. He said, I've never given anything. He said, but I'm going to change that. I'm going to, I'm going to turn things around. And he said, the Lord showed me all the good things that could have been done and all the times where he tried to impress upon me to pay my tithes and to give offerings and things like that. And I just wouldn't do it. See, that's part of what he wouldn't judge himself on. He said, but I'm making that change now. I'm going to turn things around. He had made peace with the fact that, that he wasn't going to be healed from the sickness. But he was going to spend his last days on the earth doing as good as he could. Well, he did. He did. But Brother Hagin said this. He made this comment and he, he, he broke down and said it when he told me. He said, you know, he said, of the times that I've seen, the few times that I've seen where the Lord had to turn somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. By the way, folks, you need to understand something. This is a scriptural term. God never destroys the flesh. But if a person won't judge themselves, if a person won't walk according to the commandments of love, the royal commandment of love, there comes a point in time where there's no option but to let Satan have his way in the body. Brother Hagin said this. He said, I've never seen one of those cases, and there's been several over the years for him, not for me, but for him. He said, it's I've seen it several times over the years. He said, I've never seen that happen except that once it did, the devil came at them with a, a, a ravaging, destructive force. He said, my brother suffered terribly. He lived for another eight months or so. And the last several months of his life was just agonized, agony, agonizing experience for him. Terrible for everybody. He said, I've never seen, it, seen that happen except that the devil really came out hard and heavy against somebody because he's mad at Christians anyway. And once the door is open, then he just throws everything he's got at them. Now, folks, I don't say this to make anybody afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of because there's only one law, and that's the law of love. But it's imperative that we walk in love. 
It's imperative that we walk in love. I said that'd be my last story, but I got one more for you. Okay. There was another situation where a mother had a child who had epilepsy. And there was, had taken the child of the greatest doctors that were known in that day. And nothing could be done. The doctor, one of the doctors, one of the specialists in this area said, this is the worst case of epilepsy I've ever seen in, in all my years of medical experience. Well, the Lord ministered to this lady when this child started having a seizure. He was in the beginning stages of the seizure and, and, uh, the minister went to go lay hands on him. And instead of laying hands on him, the Lord spoke to him and said, don't touch the child. Tell the mother to say, Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my child. She did, and it stopped instantly. And there was only one other time over the next 20-something years when she was given the testimony about it that that seizure ever tried to come back, and she did exactly the same thing. Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hand off my child. See, folks, there's nothing to be afraid of in the devil's power if we're walking in love because love is a protective force. And the Holy Ghost will lead you and guide you. Now, don't go looking for something that's not there. Again, here's something the devil will always try to impress upon somebody. Oh, God was talking to you. You've got to examine your life and find out what the problem is. If there's a problem that you need to correct and something you need to judge yourself on, you don't have to go looking for it. You know instantly. And if you don't know, that means there's nothing there to search out. So if there's not anything to fix, that's the point for you to rejoice and say, just like the woman, Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my body in Jesus name. But if you're in the other category, like Hezekiah, no matter what the doctor said, you can turn your face to the wall and change the circumstances, judge yourself, which had to be what Hezekiah did. Had to be. That's the only thing that would change the circumstances. You could judge yourself so that you can miss the condemnation that comes from the broken law of love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the royal law of love that protects us that keeps us into the blessings of God, that enables us to walk in divine health. Father, we commit to you that we will walk in love with everyone that we come in contact with. And when we find that we've stepped outside of love, we'll act on James 5.16. We'll go to that person and make it right. And then pray for each other that we may be healed. Thank you, Father, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, those that walk in love, makes tremendous power available, even as the word says. Thank you, Father, that healing is ours. We have been redeemed from the curse of the law. We are not under the curse of sickness. We walk in health. We thank you, Father, that that's an established fact. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us into the reality of healing. Open our eyes to what belongs to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.